Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strope. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. I just want to first thank all of you who called in last week during the Pledge Drive to support Community Radio WERU. What a fantastic community we are all a part of. I have once again a great interview for you, but before I get to that, I want to mention that the oral arguments for the Supreme Court case Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, which is formerly called Whole Women's Health v. Cole, will be held tomorrow, March 2nd. We discussed this case and what's at stake for women and abortion access in a previous episode called the Supreme Court Abortion Case with Andrea Irwin. If you missed the episode, I recommend giving it a listen. You can find it on weru.org in the archives or at soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Now about today's interview. On today's show, I interview one of our amazing interns, Amelia Foreman-Styles. She's a student at the uh, College of the Atlantic and has been doing research on comprehensive sexuality education for a workshop she'll be holding later this month. She is a parent of two. She is also a WERU listener and volunteer. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Amelia. Thank you for joining us on Reproductive Left today. Hey, Abby. Thanks for having me. Let's just get right to it. So can you first start by telling our listeners what comprehensive sexuality education is? Sure. Um, The Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States um, has a definition that I really like. Um, which defines it as an education that encompasses the full range of information, skills, and values um, that enable young people to exercise their sexual and reproductive rights and to make decisions about their health and sexuality. Um, And they're also careful to note that, contrary to what is often argued, comprehensive Um, Sexual and reproductive health education um, is not an attempt to replace traditional family values. Um, Its role is to help young people to identify their own values and to increase their awareness of all their available choices so that um, they can find the one that be appropriate for their individual needs. When you talk about comprehensive sexuality education, you often call it holistic comprehensive sexuality education. That's the title of the workshop that you will be doing. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about why you include the term holistic? Hmm. Well, to me, holistic is a philosophy. Um, It's a philosophy of wholeness. And so in this sense, I think that it refers to an education that encompasses 
not just the biological, but also the emotional, physical, relational, and psychological aspects of being a human being who will most likely engage with another human being on an emotional, sexual, relational, or psychological level. Um, so a holistic, comprehensive sex ed curriculum will include um, human rights, gender, gender equality, um, communication skills, consent, pleasure, LGBTQ, um, contraception, abortion, sexual violence, and abuse, um, and emotional and physical responsibility to yourself um, and others, and knowledge around birth and birthing rights. And the list could go on indefinitely. But those are really important things um, to include in a holistic curriculum. Now, what age should sexuality education begin? Yeah, this is a big, a big debate. Um, in my opinion, um, it can begin before your children start asking questions. So, um, in my opinion, it should begin when parents start teaching their children the names of their body parts. It not only empowers them by knowing their bodies, but it actually decreases their chances of experiencing sexual abuse. You know, there is there is debate around what's age-appropriate, but um, generally speaking, accurate information is always best. Um, you know, when your child starts asking where babies come from, it's okay to talk about penis and vagina and sperm and egg and donors and IVF. Um, you know, children will take in what is useful to them, and the rest will be like water off a duck's back, you know. Um, and you can see their eyes will glaze over, they'll lose interest. <laughs> um, and, you know, this common fear is that teaching our children too much, giving them too much information will lead to uh, earlier onset of sexual activity, um, promiscuity, and, you know, all this unhappiness in their future. But I mean, it just isn't true. And study after study confirm and show that the more informed youth are about their bodies and their rights and things like pleasure and consent and birth control and the more communication skills they've acquired through a good sex, ex sex ed curriculum, the longer they're apt to delay having intercourse and the rates of STIs and teen pregnancies decrease significantly. And this has been shown um, in countries like the Netherlands where they have really good comprehensive sexuality um, education. So, I mean, I have this dream, I always say, of a holistic curriculum that starts teaching kids in kindergarten how to be happy and healthy alone, and then as they age and it's appropriate, how to be happy and healthy with others romantically, sexually, platonically, and as a member of the community. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in doing work around um, comprehensive sexuality education and and advocating for it? Yeah, I actually was initially interested in midwifery, um, and I was uh, a freshman at University of Maine in Orono, and that was um, going the nursing route was, you know, was becoming apparent to me that it wasn't a good fit for where I am right now and how old my kids are and whatnot. And I 
happened to be taking a human sexuality class with Dr. Sandy Karen, who is awesome. And I know it just clicked with me. Um, you know, here's a field that also deals with um, empowering people with knowledge and um, creating agency for for men and women. You just mentioned Dr. Sandy Karen, and I want to just remind our listeners that she was once a guest on Reproductive Left. She did an interview about her book this and research, The Sex Life of College Students, and if you go to soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth or on the WERU website, um, weru.org, you can listen to um, listen to her interview as well. I would like to know about sexuality education in Maine specifically. Let's see. So Maine, it is required that schools offer sexuality education um, and they have to include um, they have to include information on contraception, on um, STIs and HIV. Um, they do also talk about abstinence, but it is um, not an abstinence-only curriculum. But ultimately, the language that is used and what exactly is in that curriculum is decided. Um, by each school board at each individual school. So um, Maine is considered more progressive in what we offer. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Here with me on today's show is Amelia Foreman-Stiles. She's an intern at Mabel Wadsworth Center and has been talking with us today about comprehensive sexuality education. So as you're talking about the curriculums and how they do vary based on school districts, um, I just read an article that said fewer than 5% of LGBT students have a health class that includes positive representation of LGBT-related topics. What kind of impact do you think that has on young people, and what can we do about it? Yeah, um, you know, I think that all youth are vulnerable to the lack of information around healthy sexuality, but the LBGTQ community is especially vulnerable. Um, and it goes beyond the lack of the receipt of factual information. You know, by denying them recognition in the curriculum, it denies their existence. It robs them of a normalized place in society with their peers, which is not only dangerous from a physical standpoint when you're talking about STIs, sexual violence, and HIV, but it is dangerous from a psychological standpoint as well. You know, it means that students who might not be lucky enough to have a supportive, informed family backing them up and giving them the information they need, they're not getting it from from anybody then. Um, and the LBGTQ youth are already targets of bullying and discrimination, and they are at the greatest risk for depression, substance abuse, and suicide. And there's increasing evidence that positive discussion of LGBT people and their issues decreases these risks, and it builds stronger communities within schools. You know, what we can do is, again, make our voices heard in the local school boards that we want a sexuality education curriculum that is inclusive of our 
LBGTQ children. And if it is a truly comprehensive curriculum, it will be. Um, and there is uh, the Planned Parenthood of Toronto has a great website that um, discusses a curriculum that they're developing with and for the LGBT um, community. And you can check that out by going to teenhealthsource.com and click on the Queering Sexual Education link. But, you know, I do want to know also that we are living in different times and, and um, a lot of that is really positive. You know, I think any youth that goes online can find a ton of information and a ton of support. So the isolation isn't as extreme as it might have been in, in prior generations. It's still important to create tolerance and acceptance in, in schools. But luckily, like I said, there is, there is support out there. There's a great website that I also like to plug. Um, it's scarletteen.com. That's spelt S-C-A-R-L-E-T-E-E-N.com. Um, that's a really comprehensive website. It has so much information. It's very inclusive. Kids can go on there and find um, support and information and really feel a part of a community with their peers. I have visited that website, and additionally, um, teens can ask questions and yeah, get their that. questions directly answered, which I think is a really important resource. Yeah, definitely. And and that's not the only website out there. I don't have any others off the top of my head, but um, yeah, so luckily most kids do have access to the internet. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of positive stuff going on <laughs> as well. <laughs> Earlier in the interview, you did mention that you are a parent, um, and as a parent, why do you think it's important for your kids to receive this comprehensive sexuality education in school and not just be reliant on you as their mom to provide them with the sexual sexuality education that they need? So I did some tallying around this um, actually. And the average child spends about 35 hours a week at school. And personally, my children only have about 35, 36 waking hours at home a week, um, which really makes school more like a second home. You know, studies show that some kids will get most of their information around sexuality from the media and from their peers. So if you have one kid who, who, uh, doesn't have an open and informed dialogue with their parents or family, but has unrestricted access to media, the type of knowledge that they're giving out to their peers is you know, potentially inaccurate, irresponsible, and, and probably laden with um, social biases. So, you know, and some parents avoid talking about um, sex with their children because they're embarrassed, because they're nervous, or they don't think their child is ready yet. But this child is likely getting all kinds of messages um, and that are and educating, you know, from unreliable sources like media. So, you know, I want a comprehensive sex ed curriculum in my children's school so that I know that all of their peers whom they spend so much time of their time with um, are receiving the same, you know, reliable and scientifically sound information. 
you know, then the conversations that they have with one another will be based on fact. Um, and I want the playing field to be even for my children and for all children. You know, a good holistic curriculum will help normalize the many ways we show up as sexual human beings and really just as human beings in general. You know, I want all children to feel accepted and normal and for all children to be given the chance to accept others however they show up. I want my children to grow up and have good, safe sex. You know, I want them to have communication with their sexual partners such that there is an expectation to try for mutual pleasure, even the first time. I want my children to have a clear understanding of consent and how to ensure they've gotten it before proceeding with a partner. You know, I want them to know how to actively protect themselves against sexually transmitted infections, HIV, pregnancy. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm involved in the field of sexuality. I hope that my children will feel comfortable coming to me and talking to me about these things, but they might not. And that is a reality that we all face as parents, no matter what our relationship is with our kids. That is a reality that we have to face and accept. Um, so we need to make sure that they have all the information and that they have access to what they need when they are ready. Thank you, Amelia. That's it. Um, we need to move into our Ask Mabel segment with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. But again, this has been an amazing interview and really informative. So thank you for being on Reproductive Left. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Terry, to Ask Mabel. Thank you for being here with us again, as always. Thanks for having me, Abby, as always. Today's questions are going to be about vaginismus. About two in a thousand women report um, symptoms of vaginismus, yet mo a lot of people don't know much about it. Additionally, we know that this condition is very underreported due to oftentimes embarrassment or shame, which is why we're going to spend some time today talking about it. So can you just start by telling us what vaginismus is, what are the symptoms, and um, what symptoms cause it? Thanks, Abby. I, I agree with you. I think this is a very um, infrequently talked about condition, and I definitely agree that it's, it's underreported. Um, vaginismus is a condition that can make sexual intercourse, uh, a gynecological exam, and even putting in a tampon a very painful experience uh, for the woman, if not an impossible uh, experience for her. Uh, this pain occurs with the insertion of an object such as a tampon, a penis, sex toy, speculum uh, into the vagina. The pain is caused by the involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles, uh, specifically the pubococcygeus or PC uh, muscle group, uh, leading to a generalized muscle spasm and even a temporary sensation of breathing. So women will hold their breath uh, in response to uh, this discomfort. Uh, the PC muscle group is involved with urination, intercourse, orgasm, bowel movements, and childbirth. The pain associated with vaginismus can be mild, but it may be extremely uh, severe. 
in nature. And there are really four types of vaginismus. There's primary vaginismus, which is a lifetime uh, condition in which the pain has always been present with any uh, attempt to uh, penetrate vaginally. There's secondary vaginismus, which occurs after what has been a history of a normal uh, sexual uh, function and has not always been present. There's global vaginismus, which is present in all situations of vaginal penetration, regardless of what the object is. And then there's situational uh, vaginismus, which is present only in certain situations, like with sexual intercourse, but not necessarily with her gynecologic exam, and she may be able to insert tampons without any problem at all. Uh, the incidence of vaginosis, about 18% are um, cases reported in women under the age of 25. And that number in that group may actually be quite a bit higher, um, but it you know, it's not reported, it's not necessarily understood by the clinicians, and so the information isn't even elicited. So this probably in that age group is a much higher rate. Uh, 53% of um, clients with this complaint are between the ages of 26 and 35, 26% are between the ages of 36 and 50, and about 9% are women um, over the age of 51. Symptoms of vaginosis are pain with intercourse, which some women will describe as a burning or a stinging or a tightness that causes pain. Um, penetration is difficult or impossible. Long-term pain with uh, sex with or without a known cause. Also, symptoms of pain with uh, tampon insertion, pain with a GYN exam, like you're there for your uh, pap test, or generalized muscle spasms uh, or breathing sensation um, when intercourse is attempted. Um, once triggered, the involuntary muscle tightness occurs without conscious direction. In other words, the woman has not intentionally caused or directed her body to tighten and cannot simply make it stop. Uh, women with vaginismus may initially be sexually responsive and deeply desire to have sex, but over time, uh, this desire may diminish due to their pain and feelings of failure and discouragement. It's extremely frustrating uh, to be unable to physically engage in pleasurable sexual intercourse. Causes of vaginismus may be both physical and non-physical. Uh, and sometimes there may be no identifiable cause at all. And that's, I think, where some women find themselves really stuck and stop talking about it, stop even you know, speaking to their practitioner mm -hmm. about what's been going on because they've either felt invalidated or they felt like they've walked down a path that had no end. Um, the physical causes may be something as simple as a urinary tract infection or a vaginal yeast infection. And in that case, once it was diagnosed and treated, you know, perhaps the um, pain will resolve. But other uh, longer term issues may be disease conditions such as a cancer or lichen sclerosis, which is a chronic uh, vulvar irritation, which we see more in women over the age of 30. Uh, childbirth can be a factor in um, vaginismus. Menopause 
uh, with its resultant um, changes in the vaginal um, integrity can be a factor. Uh, pelvic surgery, inadequate foreplay resulting in an inadequate sexual response cycle, uh, decreasing vaginal lubrication, and some medications may have uh, side effects that uh, create a lot of vaginal uh, dryness. There can also be non-physical uh, causes like fear, uh, fear of the pain, fear of pregnancy, uh, anxiety may be an issue, performance anxiety or guilt, uh, issues with uh, a sexual partner may be a factor, like if they have been in an abusive relationship with this partner or have felt really coerced, they feel very vulnerable, and that, that certainly can come into play. Traumatic life events that the woman may have experienced, like a sexual assault or a history of um, abuse. Childhood experience, like a lot of negative messages about sex when you were growing up, or perhaps exposure to sexual imagery that you weren't prepared to handle at a young age. Many people, both men and women, are affected by sexual dysfunction, Abby. It is not something that is an individual's fault, um, nor is it something to be ashamed of. Uh, in the majority of cases, it can be resolved successfully. How is vaginismus diagnosed? You know, there's where some trouble can come up, you know, because it can be a very complicated um, situation to um, assess. And it can involve one or more specialties. Um, it might involve um, a physical therapist, a sex therapist, um, some psychological support and counseling, as well as the gynecologist. Um, a physical exam should definitely be performed, um, including a medical history and a pelvic exam, because you want to make sure that there are no underlying um, conditions that might be causing the pain. And if that's the case and they can be treated, you can have a pretty quick resolution um, of the symptom. Commonly, this will take some time, and it's kind of diagnosed as a process of elimination. Uh, treatments. Um, you know, people have asked about, well, what about surgery? What if I change the um, anatomy of the vagina? And actually, surgery will not cure uh, vaginismus and may even worsen the condition. But then again, not treating the condition at all can cause it to worsen, leading to a longer duration uh, of increased intensity with the PC um, muscle contractions. The good news, though, is that almost 100% of women dealing with vaginismus can come to a place of cure. Treatment typically includes a combination of approaches. Usually we will recommend that the woman um, do some work with Kegels exercises to improve the control of her PC muscle group. Um, and physical therapists can be really instrumental in helping her to um, accomplish that. Um, so there might be a referral to a physical, a physical therapist. Um, also, there might be a recommendation to do some supervised um, dilation training where the client works with plastic dilators of graduated sizes to decrease her sensitivity to penetration. Uh, education and counseling, you know, sharing information um, about sexual anatomy and sexual response um, cycle helps the client to understand their pain and the process their body is going through. Also, emotional um, exercises allowing the client to identify and express and hopefully resolve uh, any emotional factors that may be uh, contributing to her vaginismus. 
The time it takes for vaginismus to be successfully treated will vary depending on the individual. The, sp- the first step, of course, um, if you have symptoms, you know, is to speak to your health care provider for evaluation. Um, you should be with the right with the right education and support, uh, be able to stop this cycle of pain associated with vaginismus. The goal of treatment is full pain-free intercourse and pleasure restoration. Uh, there's a wonderful resource, and I really do um, recommend that women um, allow themselves that opportunity to access vaginismus.com's website incredible information there and a lot of products that may be helpful in her work towards um, resolving the vaginismus. Great. Thank you, Terry. Um, You've been so helpful answering these questions around vaginismus. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thank you all for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org. And if you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, as I mentioned earlier, you can find us in the archives on weru.org. But you can also find us on SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks again for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Stroh, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month, at 4.30, right here at Community Radio, WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.